our brother Paul to the church in Romans. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they are all fulfilled in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we began to believe. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling or jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. I'd just like to add my, my thankfulness uh, to, to Jason's as well. It really is a, a blessed thing just to, to sit here and, and see what goes on on a Sunday morning. All, all the children that our congregation is blessed with um, and to see as well um, so many uh, students, young, younger men and women, not just, not just attending here, but, but actively being involved in, in leading our congregation in worship and in so many ways. Uh, we're, we're very blessed. And that's something that I think we, it's right that we give, give thanks for that on a regular basis. We're continuing our series today in, in the topic of what it means to love one another. Uh, as you might have noticed, we've been moving around from, from one passage to another, uh, looking at various places in the New Testament where the different New Testament authors tell us about this important command and as we heard today it's not it's not a new command just that they made up in the new testament as paul says this goes back to the law and the command to love our neighbor as ourselves so i don't know about you but this is the time in the winter when i start to get kind of over winter now it's kind of interesting, right? Because you would think that maybe uh, December would be the time when you should really be the most discouraged about how dark it is because it's getting darker and darker and darker as we get toward uh, the winter solstice right at the end of December. But usually in January is when it kind of catches up to me. Yes, I know it's getting a little bit more daylight each day, but it just seems like it takes so, so long before you actually start to feel it, especially in the morning. I've started to notice, okay, it's not as dark, late afternoon, evening. Man, the morning, 
6 o'clock, it is still completely dark. And so, I've, I've tried to figure out what can I do to make this a little bit easier on myself. Now, I don't know if we can dim the lights down a little so you can see this a little bit better. There we go. I bought myself this, this little bedside lamp uh, that's actually an alarm clock. You can see there, there's a, little, uh, there's a little clock function on the front. And what you do is you set this lamp for whatever time it is that you want to wake up. And then for about the half hour prior to that time, it starts to turn on. Just a little bit at first, and then brighter, and then brighter. Uh, and the idea is that it's supposed to kind of prep you for being awake. And then you can set it as well, that a little alarm will chime as well. But I found it a little bit gentler than just the shrieking alarm clock jolting you out of your slumber early in the morning. However, we decide to wake up in the morning, though. In this time of the world, we know, we, we know in where we live the sensation of getting up, and it's still really dark. We know that in January, when we're fumbling around in the morning to figure out what we're going to wear and, and get ourselves dressed and showered and all of it, it's, it's not truly nighttime anymore, right? It's, it's time to be awake. The time for sleeping is over, but it's not truly daytime yet either. It's still real, real dark out there. And in the passage that, that Jason uh, proclaimed for us today, we have that same tension at work. We'll get into this more as we go on, but St. Paul says that as Christians, we live in this same sort of scenario, similar to what we heard last week. The call in this in-between time as we await the Lord's return is that we should love our brothers and our sisters in the faith. And this, Paul asserts, has been the call to God's people all along, way back even for Israel. This is an appropriate image for this time of year, not just because it's January and it's, it's dark out there all the time, but uh, also because it's Epiphany. That is, it's the season that we reflect on the coming of the light of Christ into the world. And, and we celebrate it at Christmas time, right? In that kind of glory to God in the highest burst of glory kind of way that, that we do in the Christmas production here. But in Epiphany, we also get to continue celebrating this. And sometimes that's in some more subtle ways as we see the light increasing a little bit gradually at a time. Which all, really that, that mimics, and it's, it's very similar to what God usually does in our lives too, right? We see the light of Christ having more and more authority and doing more and more in our lives a little bit at a time as we look back on the progress that we're making and the work that Jesus is doing in us. So actually, I'm going to start by dealing with the second part of the passage first, the, the part about waking up from sleep, and then we'll talk about the call to love one another. Often in Paul's shorter letters, like, say, Ephesians, that's kind of the pattern that, that his thought runs in, right? He, he talks about sort of the theory or the theology, and then he comes around to the practice, how we should live what we should do. Some of you, if you've been in, in biblical language classes, you might have heard uh, that Paul usually talks about uh, the indicative, what is, before he talks about the imperative, how we should live. And so I'm going to just move these two around as we talk about them, and then we can see uh, that the second part of this passage is kind of the foundation for the first. That's often how Paul's logic runs. So Paul starts off by saying that 
that this, this call to wake up from sleep and to know what time it is is something his readers know, or at least they should know. And we know this too. We know that Jesus has saved us from our sins for good works that God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We know that Jesus, uh, when he rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven, he commissioned his followers to go and to make disciples of all people. We know all these things, and yet, as is often the case, and it probably was the case for, for Paul's original hearers and readers too, we often know considerably more than we are putting into practice. And I've probably said every Sunday so far in this series, and I will keep saying it, and I'll say it again, the call to love one another. It can seem like such a basic call that we might be tempted to, to think we can move on from this in some way. That This is a basic thing of the faith, and we get into deeper things or something as we progress. But we can't neglect it. We can't do that. The call to love one another is, is the foundation for how we live as believers. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Paul reminds his readers that they know what time it is. It's time to wake up and get on with daytime things. It might not be all the way daylight yet, but laying in bed some more isn't an option any longer for God's people. Now, it's kind of a curious expression Paul uses, and different translations will render this somewhat differently. Some of you might have something in front of you like, the, the night is far spent, which uh, translations that tend to follow the legacy of the King James Version often have that. The night is far spent, or it's far gone. Uh, other translations might have something like, the night is nearly over. And then he says, the day is at hand in some translations, or uh, it's almost here, you might have. So is the night over or not? Yes. Is it daytime yet or not? Yes. Paul's explaining that we're in a time of transition. Jesus' death and resurrection and the victory that Jesus brought over sin and death means that it's not, it's not truly nighttime any longer. But the fact that we await his second coming means it's not all the way daytime yet either. It's like being awake on a winter morning. Time for sleeping is over, but the sun hasn't come up. Maybe we just see a bit of a, a dim glow on the eastern horizon. But the main point is we can be confident of what time it is, and thus which way the dark light situation is going. It, the, the twilight we see maybe on the eastern horizon, it's the eastern horizon, right? It's morning twilight. It's going to get brighter. We're not looking at evening twilight and it's going to get darker. That glow will eventually become a sunrise and the day will come. And this is something we should know from a spiritual point of view. Now let's talk about getting ready for the day. We, we all have all kinds of routines. Some of you of the student persuasion, if you're like me and my peers, when we were in college, there's going to be mornings at this time of year when you probably don't see a lot of urgency for getting out of bed for your 8.30 classes. And you opt to sleep a few more minutes and you turn up at your 8.30 class having not showered, probably just thrown on some sweatpants and a hoodie, grabbed a coffee at the Bean, 
And you know, honestly, there are probably days when that's kind of what success looks like. It's a lot better option than just skipping the class, right? Which, if you were tempted to do it, weigh those options. Better to at least get there. But that's not the only kind of day you face in life. And we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end. There are important days, right? And we all know those. These look different for everyone, but they all play out in more or less the same way. Those are the days when you're excited to get up and get going. Even even when it's early, even when it's cold and dark out there. You're probably even awake before the alarm clock goes off because you're anticipating what's going to be happening on this day. A few years ago, I had, I had a memorable encounter with one of the kids in our congregation on a Sunday morning. Uh, this particular Sunday, some of the kids in our after-school Awana program uh, were going to be saying their memory verses in front of the congregation. And this particular little girl, who isn't so little anymore, looked up at me as she was getting her coat and winter boots off, and she said, today is a very important day for me. Now, would that we all had such eagerness for showing up and participating in gathered worship of God's people. But even more than that, would that we all recognize that every day the Lord gives us is a very important day when it comes to living for Jesus. In our day-to-day life, we naturally face some days that are going to be more important than other days. When it comes to how we live for Jesus, every day is a very important day for us. Every day has urgency in this call to cast off the works of darkness, get dressed for the business at hand, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and live for him. Now Paul uses a couple of images of getting ready for the day. He kind of mixes his metaphors a little bit here, but they all have to do with the theme of getting out of bed, getting ready for the task at hand and being prepared for it. Whether that's just the clothes you need to wear when he says put on the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe even he extends the image a bit farther and put on the armor of light. You're not just getting up and going to work, you're getting up and getting ready for battle. Get your equipment on. Well, he uses metaphors for how we should live uh, once we're up and living in the daytime. He's pretty concrete about how we should not live in the second part of this passage. Those things that should be left behind in the nighttime. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, dissensions, jealousy, all of those things. As I mentioned in an earlier message in this series, we evangelicals tend to be really vocal in our opposition to things like, like drunkenness and sexual immorality, or as, as Jason proclaimed for us, debauchery, right? Sometimes we get a lot less vocal in our opposition to things like dissensions and jealousy and gossip. And Paul doesn't say, though, you know, be sure you cast off the drunkenness and the sexual immorality. That's really serious. And, you know, if you get around to it at some point, you might want to lay off the gossip and the dissensions and the jealousy a little bit. Every time he makes one of these kind of lists, he lumps all of those things together. It's not like some of these things are, uh, you got to get rid of that. Yeah, you know, if you want to be extra good, get rid of these other things too. Let's remember, it's not just the sins we're already pretty good at avoiding that are the serious ones. And let's remember that all these sins, whether it's, it's adultery or, or gossip or jealousy, they don't just affect ourselves. All these things that Paul's mentioning here, these affect the whole body. 
let's go back to the beginning of the passage. In the latter portion of the passage, he's pretty specific about the sort of behavior to avoid. But he speaks in metaphors about the way we should live. If we flip back to the first half, we get some more concrete instruction there about the positive things that we should do. But, but first, he has this kind of curious thing about not owing anyone anything. Now, what does, what does this mean? Does it mean that it's wrong to take out a loan? Does it mean that it's wrong to use a credit card? Some people would argue that, but truthfully, if we look at Scripture as a whole, it, we probably should allow that to critique our kind of overloaded consumer debt-financed culture. And I checked into non-mortgage debt in Canada and found that the average Canadian man, woman, child, baby, every single human owes something like $16,000 in non-mortgage debt. Now, maybe if you've got some hefty student loans, you're saying, hey, that's actually, that's actually not so bad. But remember, this is an average for all Canadians, babies, elderly people, right? So there's a large portion in this average that has zero debt. So it'd be interesting to see what the statistics are for, of people that have debt, what is the average amount once you cut out all the babies and, and all the elderly people that have paid off all their debts. Probably be a lot higher. Now, that's not to heap guilt on you if you took out loans to, to finance your education or to buy a car or you had an emergency where you needed to put some, some debt on your credit card. I don't think Paul is saying never to borrow money. In fact, just a few verses back in, in the earlier portion of chapter 13, he recognizes you owe things like, like taxes and so forth. And his encouragement there is that you should pay whatever it is that you owe. Rather than saying you should never borrow anything, or you should never owe anything, it's probably more true that he's saying we should be earnest and even urgent in paying off whatever we owe. You know, don't just pay the minimum that isn't even going to touch the interest. Do whatever you can. Do whatever you have to do to pay that down as quickly as possible. In both parts of our text today, we have this, we have this theme of urgency, right? In, in the first part, pay what you owe. Don't delay. That's a metaphor for how we should live as Christians. And in the second part, get up and get out of bed and get dressed. Get doing the business at hand for the day. That's how we should be living as Christians. Both of these images speak to the, the urgency and the importance of living for Jesus in the time we have now. So we have a sense of urgency call to live for Jesus. It's urgent, like getting out of bed and getting ready for an important day. The call to live for Jesus is urgent, like paying down the debt that you might owe. The call to live for Jesus means we have to cast off the works of darkness, like sexual immorality and drunkenness and slander and dissension and all those things. But what does the call to live for Jesus look like concretely, if we put it positively? Well, based upon the, the name of our series and what we're talking about each week, it's going to be that we should love one another. Now there's, there are people that make a big difference out of the, the, or a big deal out of the difference between Jesus and Paul. There's some people that say, well, Paul kind of took, took the faith in a different direction than Jesus ever intended it to go. And, well, Paul really invented this thing called Christianity. Jesus, you know, those are arguments for another time. I think it's important that we see here that Paul is basically saying the same things that Jesus said in his teaching. 
and his earthly ministry. Remember, Jesus said more than once, the first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what did he say after that? On these depend all the law and the prophets. Then Paul says, and remember in this, in this section of Romans, he's dealing with the horizontal aspect of our faith, the one anothering. He says, love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you're fulfilling the law. And Paul cites a few examples from the second portion of the Ten Commandments, right? The, the portion of the Ten Commandments, again, that has to do with the horizontal aspect of our obedience. Don't covet, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. And he points out that if you love your neighbor, you're not going to do these things. And if you're not doing these things, you're probably not going to be breaking the more smaller and specific commandments about how you should treat your neighbor as well. At least you won't be doing those things with any malicious intent. But let's just dig a little deeper here. Paul doesn't say, actually, that loving one another is the same as keeping the law or obeying the law. Although he seems to mean at least that. You, you should do these things because if you do them, you will obey all the rest of the commandments too. He says that loving your neighbor means that you're fulfilling the law. That's a word that's used a lot by the gospel writers, uh, mainly Matthew and Luke, but also John, especially when he gets into his passion narrative. And, and this word is used by the gospel writers to, to point out, to highlight, to, to say, look at this, this thing right here that Jesus did or Jesus said or that happened in Jesus' ministry. This, this thing that you're witnessing right here that I'm telling you about, this was talked about in the Old Testament. The law and the prophets said that this would happen. And Jesus is completing that. He's doing that. He's, he's accomplishing it. He's fulfilling it. I'm sure we all remember Jesus himself saying this. Right? In the Sermon on the Mount, those famous words. Right? I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, to accomplish it. I think we all get this. We get that Jesus fulfilling all things looked like loving us even while we were yet sinners and dying for us. We learned, we probably memorized that at some point, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if Jesus fulfilled these things by his sacrificial love and his life and his death and his resurrection. Why do we have here in Romans this, this ongoing debt, if you will, to love one another and so fulfill the law? Let's just remember, Jesus doesn't just save us as individuals. And the, the salvation that he offers isn't just future-oriented. It's not some kind of an insurance policy we can just put in our back pocket for some time when we might need it. Look, look at how Paul talks about it here. What Jesus did for us brought a major transformation. It created a whole new reality. Now here Paul talks about it in terms of, of eras, right? The old era of darkness and night 
is passing away. And with what Jesus has done for us, this new era of light and life and daytime has begun. In other places, Paul's going to talk about these things in terms of, of realms or, or of kingdoms. And so scripture tells us when we are saved, we're, we're united with Christ. And we're, we're pulled out of this old kingdom of darkness and sin and death. And this old era of darkness and sin and death. And we're placed, we're, we're transported, we're, we're put into this new era or this new kingdom of light and life. And in this, this new realm or in this new era, the, the loving fulfillment of God's law by our Savior Jesus, that's the new norm. And because we're united with him, we can participate in that by loving one another even now. I've talked a little bit in this message a couple of times uh, one word that's come up in particular is that this call to love one another and this call to live as, as people of the daytime and not of the nighttime. It, it's, a, it's an earnest call or even an urgent one. Now here's the thing. We are, we are constantly bombarded with, with all sorts of things that are announcing themselves to us as urgent. Right? Emails to respond to, quizzes to prepare for, lessons to practice for, car repairs that need doing, sick kids. The list goes on and on. And such is our reality that you've probably heard the phrase at some point, right? Tyranny of the urgent. You've, you've heard that at some point. You've felt that, maybe that oppressive tyranny of the urgent, like there's so much and it's, it's all just presenting itself to you as the most important thing, even though there's like a hundred of them. They can't all be the most important thing, but they all say they are. So maybe urgent isn't exactly the right word, or perhaps we just need to reclaim the proper meaning of the word urgent. Because there's a lot of false urgency in our world, right? It, it, all these things, they live in the realm of because I said so, or, or people-pleasing, or artificial deadlines, and, and this phrase that we always say, I'm, it's just busy, everything's so busy, busy, we're busy, we're all busy. I was reading something recently that, that described this, this sort of mentality, and that's where a lot of people and a lot of organizations live, where you just kind of focus on doing all these, these shallow, busy work sort of things, and it gives you this, this false sense of actual accomplishment. You just do all this urgent stuff, and you're like, wow, look at all the things I crossed off, but they weren't really truly urgent. They were just saying they were urgent. So rather than that, let's, let's think about true urgency. Now there's a negative side to true urgency. There will be actual consequences if you don't do this thing. And, and often when things are truly urgent, the consequences tend to be long-term consequences. Whereas the things that are just sort of false urgent, they're just those little, little things that are getting in our way right here and now with little short-term consequences. The truly urgent things, the most important ones, the consequences are usually further down the road. But they're often bigger. To return to that image of debt that Paul used, uh, if you ever see a credit card statement, they usually have that, that thing on there that tells you how long it's going to take you to pay off whatever you, you put on your credit card if you only make the minimum payments. And it doesn't take a, a very large credit card purchase 
before it's going to take you years to pay it off, right? And then it tells you how much you will have paid to them, and it, you borrow, you know, you pay 250 or $500 or something, and by the end you've paid them $1,500 five years from now or something. That, that's, that's the sort of long-term consequence. There's also a positive side to true urgency, though, right? When something is truly and properly urgent, it is that because it's a more compelling alternative than the other thing you could do. It's, it's actually more important than the other things that you could choose to do. So it's urgent, to use Paul's other example, that you, you get out of bed and you put clothes on and maybe armor and fight the good fight because God's kingdom needs you. Now, let's, let's go back to the analogy of this, this little wake-up light here. So, this light, if I'm asleep, and this light comes on, and it gets a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter, and eventually it beeps at me and tells me it's time to get out of bed, and I, I wake up, and, you know, you collect your, your thoughts a little bit, and I say to myself, it's Saturday. I can, I can lay here a little bit longer, can't I? And maybe I can. But what happens if I wake up and, and I start thinking to myself, oh, it's, it's, it's a special Saturday today, right? It's, it's like the last Saturday in March. Something, something's important today. So, somebody's getting married. I have a wedding to do, right? It's, Grace and Jonathan are getting married. I can't lay in bed anymore. I've got to get up. And Okay, let, let's just imagine this. It presents me with options. I, I guess I could show up to, to perform a wedding, like still in my, in my jammies, in my bathrobe, with a box of Fruit Loops. Um, and I could walk in five minutes after it started when Grace has already walked down the aisle. That would be a very bad choice. That, that, there's something that's, that's truly and properly urgent that, that compels me to get out of bed and to dress properly for that occasion. Like, probably I'm going to put on a suit or something, maybe a dog collar. I, I'm not going to show up with a box of Fruit Loops. I better, have, like, I better have my notes. I better have a marriage license so that it's actually done legal. Like, there's things I have to do to make sure that I'm properly prepared for such an occasion. Others of you, you'll, you'll have other things that are going to be similarly, properly, compellingly urgent. If you have a playoff game of some sort, you're not going to show up at the gym in your house coat and slippers with your teddy bear while Kayla's singing the national anthem, right? Th that would be a poor choice. You should show up early. You should get your uniform on. You should make sure you have your equipment. You should warm up. Right? If, if you show up in that way and at that time, five minutes late, coach isn't going to be very happy with you. But you probably don't even have to think of that because the game is compelling and you're excited to be there and you want to be there. I think we all know these sorts of situations in our lives, right? You're not going to show up for work that late and that unprepared, at least not very long. Right? Important performances, defending your master's thesis, a job interview, 
the first day on the job, setting out to travel abroad, going in for surgery, whatever these things, they naturally loom large enough in our lives that we're going to show up, we're going to be early, we're going to double check that we've got all the things that we're supposed to have to be prepared for such a day. Laying in bed, looking at memes and eating Fruit Loops in your jammies is, is going to be a lot more comfortable, but it's also a lot less compelling. So if, if we're prepared to show up to all of these other things that are important in regular day-to-day -day life, dressed, prepared appropriately with whatever it is we need for the task at hand, then we should also be prepared to show up as well in that way, spiritually speaking, for our lives of faith. And a major portion of that is going to have to do with being prepared to love one another, to go beyond what is comfortable and choose instead what's more compelling, what is more truly worthwhile. And I think as we do that, we will find that those things are actually compelling. That we do get excited about the possibility of doing those things, just like we'd get excited about getting up and, and playing an important game or, or celebrating with someone one of the truly most important milestones in their life. So let's be prepared to show up for our lives of faith just like we'd be prepared to show up for an important occasion in our regular life. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and how it speaks to us and how it challenges us. It challenges us to get up and get ready. It challenges us to be prepared. It challenges us to show up our lives of faith the way we would show up to something important in, in our day-to-day -day life. As we see this call to, to love one another, may we truly come to understand and appreciate that this, this is the new normal in the era of Jesus' kingdom, in the realm of Jesus' kingdom, of, of light and life. And, and given that, may we be prepared, Lord. Will you empower us by your Holy Spirit, Lord? to go beyond what is comfortable, the equivalent, spiritually speaking, of, of laying in bed, snoozing a bit longer, and instead to choose what is compelling, living for your kingdom and sacrificially loving one another, caring for one another, building up our brothers and sisters in the faith, being the body that you call us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name.